0: So this is a big blow. It's like, of course, the intent behind all of this is to uh, turn what has existed since 1990 as a military occupation into a settler colonial state. You're listening to the Corbett Report.
1: Welcome, friends. This is James Corbett at corporatereport.com. Today is the 20th of August, 2019, and today we're joined on the line by a new guest to the Corbett Report. Dr. Mohammed Jinnad, who is a teacher of anthropology at the Massachusetts College of Liberal Arts in North Adams, Massachusetts. He's written extensively on Kashmir and contributed essays to several volumes about the Kashmir region. He has also grown up in Kashmir, so he has some experience, um, obviously, with the region and its politics. And we are going to be talking about something that I did cover recently in an editorial that I wrote for the uh, the International Forecaster. If you haven't seen that, I will include the link in the show notes so that you can read up about the developments in the Kashmir region, specifically Indian-occupied Kashmir. But let's get some more details and information. Dr. Janad, thank you very much for joining us today. My pleasure. Let's start actually by talking about your own experience uh, with Kashmir. And at this point I'd like direct to direct people to a very interesting and insightful article that you wrote for The Fanambulist earlier this year called Disobedient Bodies Defiant Objects, Occupation, Necropolitics and the Resistance in Kashmir. It's a it's a very interesting um, dissection of what it means to to really live in an militarily occupied region that I think a lot of people in the audience won't be able to comprehend from first-hand experience. Tell us about your own experience growing up in Kashmir and uh, what, uh, what that region looks like.
0: Uh, so I have lived most of my life in Kashmir. In fact, um, I grew up in the uh, late 80s, early 90s. Uh, early 90s was the period in, period in Kash- Kashmir. And there was a more independence. Um, And in 1990, India began sending hundreds of thousands of its troops into Kashmir. Uh, They were not only armed with the national will of India to repress these pro-independence protests, but they were also given extensive immunity through a law called Armed Forces Special Powers Act, um, which meant that they could um, arrest, uh, kill, uh, confiscate property, um, and they would not be prosecuted uh, within the course of law. Um, So I grew up in Kashmir during that very intense period. This is a time when uh, massacres of Kashmiri civilians were happening uh, on a regular basis all around us. Um, And so this period lasted until 1999 when I left Kashmir to go to India, to New Delhi, where I uh, studied for my bachelor's and master's. And during this period, I tried to understand um, and my research project during this time was uh for my an M- MPhil thesis um to understand the indian narratives on Kashmir what do indians think about Kashmir what are the sources of uh this violent uh control that the indian state was um you know enforcing in Kashmir eventually this led me back to Kashmir where i continued my research and i uh, started teaching in Kashmir for a year in 2008, 2009, um, but because of frequent curfews, fr- frequent uh, you know uh, security lockdowns, internet blackouts, communication blockades, it was very really hard to live there. I mean, out of the 300, 365 days uh, that I spent there during that year, I believe more than half was spent confined at home. Um, so then I went, came to the U.S. to do my PhD, and I've been continuing to work over the last uh, 10 years, writing extensively, not only about what is happening in Kashmir, but making connections with um, other such, um, you know, events that are taking place and making sense of what does it mean, really, for uh, people who are minorities within these large, big, powerful nation states um, uh, to exist on the margins.
1: Well, yes, making sense of this I think is really the key. So I'm glad we have you here today to discuss this because this I mean the the movements that we've seen in the last couple of weeks here have been very strange and very um unprecedented one might say. But first let's get a handle on on the uh, the, the region itself. First of all, of course there is the Indian occupied Kashmir across, across the line of control there's also Pakistan and you also have China abutting on that uh, on that region. So you have three powers that all have some stake in the region that are all um, nuclear powers that have all had their share of military conflicts in the past. I mean, this is obviously a volatile region, so a dramatic move like this can make a huge change. But let's talk about Indian-occupied Kashmir in particular. What, uh, what is the, the ethnic uh, breakdown, the religious breakdown, the linguistic breakdowns? What kinds of, uh, of different um, ethnicities and, and backgrounds do people have in that region?
0: Uh, so to fully understand um, this question one has to go back to 1947 just the moments before uh, the partition of uh, in british india into india and pakistan so kashmir at that time was this region um with uh, multiple regions constituting the state of kashmir on one side was uh, gilgit baltistan mountainous region um that separate that wanted nothing to do with uh, india uh, on the other, and then further south to that was uh, Kashmir Valley, which was mostly Muslim. There was ninety-five percent Muslim uh, Kashmiri Muslim population there. A uh, three to four percent of that uh, of the population was Hindu. Uh, both of these were indigenous communities in Kashmir. Like I mean, you know, I mean, uh, for hundreds and thousands, probably um, thousands of years, they had lived in that same region. They spoke a distinct language, Kashmiri. And had uh, common cultural uh, practices, except for religious uh, differences, which were not manifest all the time in, t- in terms of any theology. Uh, they had very common; you couldn't distinguish a Kashmiri Pandit, uh, Kashmiri Hindu, from a Kashmiri Muslim, um, except that there were some class differences. Kashmiri Hindus uh, were uh, a privileged minority under the pre-1947 Hindu state that ruled Kashmir, uh, but and the Kashmiri Muslims were uh, largely the disempowered. Uh, majority. Uh, And then to the south was Jammu, which was a little more heterogeneous in terms of its ethnicities. There was a Muslim majority, uh, uh, broadly around 62% of the population, and uh, a larger minority of uh, Kashmiri Hindus. Um, And I I can tell you what happened there as well, because in in the moment of that transition from uh, being, an, uh, free, uh, being a free, being a state into its own, to becoming uh, bifurcated between India and Pakistan, and the coming of Jammu and Kashmir under the control of India, which was, you know, um, occasioned also by a massive massacre and ethnic cleansing in the, this region of Jammu, where um, close to two hundred thousand Muslims um, and even more were um, either massacred or pushed out into the Pakistani uh, control side and beyond. And so that region became a Hindu majority region uh, during this time. And then there was this larger area of Ladakh, which was a sparsely populated, high altitude, cold desert, where they were like close to 46% uh, Buddhists and 46% Muslims, and the rest were smaller uh, other communities. And the part of uh, that region aksai chin which is under na- chinese control now um, came under chinese control only in 1962 and but china claims the larger uh, region of ladakh as part of uh, uh, that uh, of china um so this region became bifurcated in 1940 between 1947 and 49 between uh, during the war between india and pakistan and um, in a way it was like extension of this partition principle uh that was imposed on Kashmir without Kashmiris having any say about what their future should be like.
1: Right. Well that that, that does bring up the question because you note that there was the privileged Hindu minority in the Hindu state of, of Kashmir at that time. Um and I think the presumption would be that the Hindu leaders essentially sold the population out to in India by choosing, signing the agreement to put themselves under India to whatever extent in the semi-autonomous state of Jammu and Kashmir. Is there truth to that? Or was that something that was broadly supported by the Kashmiri population at that time?
0: Uh, So in before and uh, immediately after 1947, there were several political tendencies within Kashmir. Um, There was uh, among the Kashmiri Muslim majority, there was a a class-based uprising against the Dogra regime. They wanted uh, Kashmiris to have the same rights as Kashmiri Hindus were uh, enjoying. Um, But it would be unfair to say that all Kashmiri pundits kind of sold Kashmiri Muslims uh, over to India. Uh, Within Kashmiri, uh, Kashmiri pundits are not a unified voice. Uh, You know, among them, there were socialists. There were uh, people who were also uh, worried about what the Hindu state had done to the Kashmiri Muslims, and they didn't want to sell off uh, Kashmiri Muslims to anyone. Uh, but yes, there were uh, there were strong voices within that uh, within that minority privileged elite who wanted those privileges to be retained after 1947. So after 1947, a very important development took place. Um, there were something called land reforms, um, where the Kashmiri leaders at that time uh, who had promised. Uh, that once we get rid of this uh, oppressive Hindu state, we will be free to conduct, um, you know, economic reforms so that the, this uh, injustice that had been uh, carried out for more than forty six could be uh, corrected, and land could be distributed from big feudal landlords uh, to the Kashmir's impoverished minority, you know, uh, pe- peasantry. And that, when that was carried out, a lot of Kashmiri pundits who did hold large pieces tra- tracts of land in Kashmir, um, and there were like Kashmiri some Muslims as well who hold uh, who held those tracts of land, they began to have a reactionary response uh, to this land to this land reforms. And in 1953, there was a coup against the. Sheikh Abdullah government um, who was the leader at that time who had carried out the land reforms and he was put in prison uh, in connivance with the indian state uh, for uh, more than uh, you know 11 12 years um, and so that's the beginning of the loss of the promises that were made to kashmiris uh, in that era um, so I, I just want to say that um, it's a very complicated picture. I don't want to say that uh, Kashmiri Hindus speak with one voice. There were voices who, who who saw themselves more closer to Kashmir's Muslim majority than with the Indian Hindus.
1: All right. Well, that gets us into the meat and potatoes of. Article 370 and Article 35A and all of these terms that we've heard in the news recently that I think most people probably have no idea what this is actually about. And I know this is a huge, huge topic, but how do we condense it down for people who are just learning about this? How can you describe the autonomy of the Jammu and Kashmir region under India that existed and that has apparently just been revoked by parliamentary measure? Uh, what, what exactly took place here in the last couple of weeks?
0: Uh, So again, like the two key provisions uh, that were part of uh, Indian constitution were Article 370 and Article 35A. Now, the history of these provisions goes back again to 1947. When the Hindu, last Hindu ruler of Kashmir in 1947, decided to join Hindu-majority India against the wishes of his Muslim-majority subjects, Um, the Indian state was quite nervous that Um, you know, this arrangement was not going to last because because the Hindu king's decision had no popular support in Kashmir. And uh, there were some Kashmiri Muslim leaders, including Sheikh Abdullah, who was at that time convinced by the Indian leaders like Jawaharlal Nehru, that if you have some kind of, uh, if you endorse the Hindu ruler's decision, we will give um, Kashmir uh, Autonomy, because the, in even the Hindu rulers' decision, which was uh, called the Instrument of Accession, gave India powers over only three matters: uh, defense, communications, and external affairs. The so rest of the uh, stuff that states do were to be under the Kashmir state's own control. Uh, now, the, the negotiations between the Muslim leaders of Kashmir, some of the Muslim leaders of Kashmir and the Indian leaders, led to the enshrinement of an article in the Indian Constitution called Article 370, which broadly defined Kashmir's relationship with India, uh, where Kashmir had to have what they called a special status. It, it simply meant autonomy. Um, this provision was gradually, as I mentioned earlier, in 1953 when the coup took place, they, the, the provisions, the, the, the content of the Article 370 was gradually eroded. For instance, Kashmir uh, was supposed to have a prime minister, its own prime minister, its own president, its own state flag. Um, It was supposed to make laws uh, that would apply to Kashmir. India and parliament couldn't make laws that could apply to Kashmir. But these things didn't matter. Kashmir was supposed to have its own superior court. Um, But these things were gradually taken away until, you know, on August 5, 2019, when uh, the, the article was completely scrapped. The other article, Article 35A, actually had its history... Even before 1947, and um, it was Kashmiri Hindus, the small minority who had been privileged, who were worried uh, that the Punjabi Hindus were going to come to Kashmir and take away their jobs. Um, and you know, so they pleaded with the, their Hindu ruler uh, to, you know, make Kashmir for Kashmiris. They were not under any threat from Kashmiri Muslims at that time, who were not given education or any benefits anyway um so the hindu state in kashmir had created this special provisions to protect the kashmiri hindus and after 1947 um this kashmir for kashmiris where kashmiris could have a permanent residency they could uh, buy and purchase immovable property in the area apply for government jobs was uh, limited to kashmiris and this is a key blow to kashmiris right now because what it has done is opened up avenues For Indians to come in, Indian capital to come in, uh, you know, rich Indians who can buy uh, land in Kashmir and also push in like, you know, Hindus into a territory which is demographically as well as ecologically very sensitive.
1: That's right. So uh, Article 370 and Article 35A have been rejiggered so that the autonomy or semi autonomy that uh, Jammu and Kashmir formerly enjoyed has been revoked, essentially. And my understanding is that the region is now going to be split into two federally administered territories?
0: Yes. So what uh, the Indian government has done is taken apart, split apart this territory that has existed as one uh, since 1846 um you know and uh, completely taken away the not only made kashmir equal which is what it was telling its constituents but actually demoted and downgraded the status of this territory uh, now ladakh which is sparsely populated will have no legislative assembly and will be directly ruled from new delhi and kashmir is supposed to have jammu and kashmir was supposed to have some kind of legislative power but very minimal but uh, the key elements like control over land use, as well as uh, the police will be under the Indian government. So this is a big blow. It's like, Of course, the intent behind all of this is to uh, turn what has existed since 1990 as a military occupation into a settler colonial state.
1: Yes, I mean, I'm wondering if there is any other possible justification for this. Of course, Modi has been saying, uh, Prime Minister Modi has been saying in recent days that this is in, in response to terrorism in the region and, and what have you. But, um, but is, is there any sensible reason that could possibly be forwarded for this move other than simply the creation of the uh, sort of the BJP Hindu nationalist state um, or the next extension in that, that vision?
0: Well, it's very hard to understand how it is going to, like, uh, you know, prevent people from taking up arms against the state. In fact, it's going to drive more people in Kashmir. Um, and uh, because, you know, not only have has the state uh, alienated and pushed aside the voices of Kashmiris who want freedom from India, they have now even uh, completely undermined its own loyalists in Kashmir. All the pro-India politicians in Kashmir are under arrest right now. They have disarmed the Kashmiri police. The same Kashmiri police who have acted as the second fiddle as well as like the 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 you know the arm of the the forcible arm of the Indian state in Kashmir for so long. So it's only going to increase violence if anything. The second point about that Modi has been making about development is Cock and Bull story. You know, in Kashmir, um, the, there are already Indian companies who do business. There is big Indian companies like Reliance, uh, Bharati Telecom, and like HDFC and many other companies who, who invest and in, uh, do business in Kashmir. Indian companies um, have been given 99-year leases by the Indian, Kashmir state government over land, which is practically for 99-year lease means for 100 years they can be there and then renew the leases. Um, you know, and so I think that uh, nothing in Kashmir has prevented investments from taking place, except the fact that the state is so repressive. Uh, The state has destroyed the infrastructure of uh, the state. Um, The Indian state has, like, through militarization of public spaces, through curfews and blocking people from continuing their everyday life and business activities, it has, um, you know, basically tamped down on the Kashmiris, Kashmiri economy and livelihood. I mean, many Indian economists themselves have been saying that despite all the state violence in Kashmir and the clampdowns, Kashmir's uh, if, uh, you know, uh, human development indicators are way better than many of the other states that are directly ruled by the, Mr. Modi's own party.
1: So uh, I guess the real question is, why now? What, what changed in the political calculation that f- enabled Modi and the Indian government to do this at this point?
0: Well, two things. One has to do with what, what has happened in India over the last uh, few decades. And second, what is happening globally at the present juncture. Let me take you first to what has been happening within India and who is Modi. Um so Modi is a lifelong member of this organization called RSS. RSS means rashtriya Swamsevak Sangh. It is a, a world's largest right-wing paramilitary organization that has uh, existed since 1920s. It is a Hindu supremacist organization which believes that um, non-Hindus within India uh, have, if they want to live in India, must live subservient to Hindu interests must live as second-class citizens. And so they have been targeting Kashmir's Muslim majority for a very long time. If you go to their website, they still say the biggest problem, the issue, key issue in Kashmir is uh, uh, the Muslim majority, which needs to be uh, turned into a disempowered minority. They do not like Muslims anywhere in India um, having any kind of political say um, so, I mean, this has happened over the last uh, 10, uh, you know, eight years since Modi came to power, especially. Extensive violence uh, that has been carried out uh, on Muslims in the name of uh, cows and, and stuff. Um, and so, this is a long term RSS agenda. And right now, uh, they have a majority in the par- Indian parliament, um, which they feel is like that the Indian national will is behind them. And they can do whatever they want in Kashmir, and nobody is going to stop them. Unfortunately, it is true because in India, the Indian media has simply uh, kowtowed to uh, the Indian nationalism. Like anyone who questions Indian Modi or Indian government's policies is instantly labeled as anti-India or anti-national and, uh, you know, castigated. So this is one. The second is the international moment we are living in. Over the last uh, few years, we know with the rise of uh, populist right-wing governments, you know, in the West, the so the liberals, you know, world order, which was based on some degree of respect for human rights, which was built on some degree of respect for the rights of minorities, um, has um, eroded and... Uh, um, you know, there is, I mean, right now, Modi's actions are getting support from some of the most racist uh, anti-immigrant, you know, populist leaders around the world. And um, so Modi feels that somehow he is um, at the right moment, uh, you know, at the crust of a certain time where he can do this and get away with it. So he seems, he feels that Because nobody seems to care about human rights of people anymore. He has a carte blanche license to do whatever he wants in Kashmir.
1: If that is the calculus, it seems like a miscalculation to me, because obviously Pakistan has been quite vociferously opposed to this, as we could all have predicted. Um, China, through their foreign office, has issued statements to the effect that they are unhappy with this and that India should, uh, should... Exercise caution. The United Nations Security Council and, uh, uh, were the United Nations uh, uh, Secretary General has issued statements to that effect. Even the United States, which has been quite close with India in building an Indo-Pacific world order to presumably roadblock China and the creation of a Chinese uh, Asian order, um, has issued some caution on this matter and saying that uh, asking for restraint. So it doesn't seem like. Uh, Modi has a lot of political support. Even within India, the Indian political opposition seems uh, opposed to this move, which is, again, quite a a bold uh, change in the status quo. Um, I feel it's a miscalculation. I feel that this will not go easily. Um, What's your uh, sense on the direction that this is heading geopolitically?
0: I think what Modi and his, um, you know, close confidence were not calculating uh, was uh, the international response, the international media's response. Um, the initial response has been due to the outcry among the Kashmiri diaspora. Um, they have, uh, you know, rejuvenated interest in Kashmir around the world. They've tried to make aware... The media aware to take interest in what is happening there, um, but Modi has also, you know, I just came back from India. I spent like some time in Delhi, and I was speaking to writers, activists, filmmakers. Um, they feel really stifled. Uh, they feel uh, th- that you know the in, India has lost its trajectory; that it has lost some some of its liberal traditions, um, you know, irrevocably, and they are. F- Feeling like I mean, of course, Kashmiris have been pushed to the wall and repressed uh, under jag boot. But Indian liberals are also feeling the same way. Uh, so I think that then and many minorities, smaller states in India, feel that if India could unilaterally do this to Kashmiris, they can do the same thing to them. Uh, so there has been, I agree with you, there has been some degree of response. In many cases, the response from Congress, which is the main opposition party which has a smaller number of members in the Indian parliament, um, has been very strange. Like on one side, the party has opposed the move. On the other side, there are independent voices that have either uh, supported Modi government or have been very tepid in their response. Some of the there are like parties like BSP and uh, the uh, Am Aadmi Party in Delhi, which have like Come out surprisingly in support of Modi government. Of course, it doesn't surprise Kashmiris so much, but it has. Um, and India, of course, did not really calculate the response of uh, uh, you know the international community, China or Pakistan so much. Um, I would still think. I still think that uh, you know the. What United Nations, um, the, it, it means that somehow the United, uh, UN Security Council taking up the question of Kashmir, although in a very uh, flimsy manner, uh, does bring attention back after 50 years to Kashmir internationally. But um, the lack of a joint statement at the end of it is like a, a glaring uh, mistake. Um, I think that it puts the credibility of the international community uh, at grave risk. Because what is unfolding right now in Kashmir is not simply a permanent change in its status, but a humanitarian disaster.
1: That's right. And, and the thing that angers me most about these types of issues is that it generally does go into the talk about what does this major world power think about it? Or what does that major world power think about it? But what about the Kashmiris themselves? And unfortunately, that's the big excluded part of this conversation, because the, uh, the region has been on such an incredible lockdown over the past couple of weeks. Can you tell us about what is happening in the region right now and how the Kashmiris are responding to it so far?
0: Well, so before August 5, when the Indian parliament took this decision, unilateral decision, uh, for close to two weeks, Indian government had been circulating these official orders. They were bringing in um, you know, additional paramilitary forces and army into Kashmir. There are already close to 800000 750000 soldiers in kashmir um and by now they have brought uh, the number to 1 million uh, so they were like blocking um like uh, you know neighborhoods cutting separating neighborhoods separating families from each other arresting activists journalists academics um political leaders Uh, They were also like, you know, they blocked the Internet completely, cut down, cut off phones of people, landlines. So everybody, the world was totally isolated. Kashmir was, before this order was passed in the parliament, Kashmir had become the world's largest open air prison, where uh, Kashmiris outside could not speak to their families inside at all. And so even now, we don't know what is happening uh, across Kashmir, we we have some visuals, some reports coming from uptown areas of uh, main city of Srinagar, but we don't know uh, what is happening in South Kashmir, which has been the epicenter of protests against India for years now. Um, and so, Kashmiris, most Kashmiris haven't been even told uh, that a decision uh, about their fate has already been made uh, made uh, by India. So. Um, I don't know uh, what is going to happen once people come to know and if India and when it uh, reduces, eases the pressure on Kashmir. Kashmir it looks like uh, a, a pressure cooker right now.
1: That's right. And as the most militarized or at least one of the most militarized regions in the world on the uh, crossroads of three major nuclear powers. This is not a situation to take lightly. That's why I hope people are following it. And so I will direct people to the article that I wrote uh, that I mentioned at the top of this conversation, as well as your article about disobedient bodies, defiant objects, which I will link in the show notes for this conversation. I'll also be directing people to your Twitter account at mjunedr. And obviously the link will be there in the show notes if people are interested in that. Finally, are there any other sources or uh, news outlets in English that you would direct people to that might be good sources for information in the region?
0: I would direct people to the resources that people uh, at um, StandWithKashmir.com have put together. Um, There are uh, Kashmiri academics and non-Kashmiri academics who have deep interest and scholarship on Kashmir. Um, uh there's Kashmir, uh, critical Kashmir scholars uh, and um, Kashmir scholars consultative network that people can follow. They put together um, reports uh, on Kashmir. Uh, there have been some Indian news agencies who've done, um, you know, good reportage for, on Kashmir. The Wire.in has been active. Uh, but unfortunately, uh, you know, not. I couldn't say that about most of the Indian news media right now.
1: All right. Well, I will definitely be keeping my eye on this situation and I'll be looking forward to uh, for the reports uh, from yourself and others. So thank you very much for the update today, Dr. Mohammed Janad. I very much appreciate your time.
0: Thank you so much. It was a pleasure talking to you.